Hello, and welcome to the Psych and Business Podcast, where we highlight the integration of psychology and psychological principles into the world of business and organizations. I'm your host, Dr. Ernest Wade. I'm pretty excited about our guest today because she's such a fantastic example of a leader who has seamlessly integrated her psychological training into her leadership in the world of business. I heard her share a little bit of her experience at a conference, and I knew that we had to have her on the show. Her name is Dr. Kristen Robleski. Chris brings over a decade of experience as a leader in real-world evidence and health outcomes research at several international pharmaceutical companies, which has had the pleasure of guiding scientist teams in the development and execution of extensive research portfolios. Chris has such an extensive and interesting background that I'm actually going to let her share that with you. Chris, welcome to the show. Hi, Ernest. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Chris, I'm really glad that you're able to make the time to share. You know, once I, I heard you talk at that conference and I knew that you, you were going to be such a great guest. So I'm going to dive right in and ask, uh, how did you get from being a clinical psychologist to a business leader at one of the world's biggest pharmaceutical companies? Uh, by accident, of course. Um, so I, I did. I trained as a clinical psychologist, um, had done most of my research and training in geriatrics and neuropsychology. And when I was wrapping up my postdoc, I was looking at um, different career opportunities. And I'm sure as many psychologists, clinical psychologists who may be listening to this podcast, the options you're given are to go into clinical work or to go into some sort of academic position, maybe with research. So I was exploring that a little bit, had some contacts at a pharmaceutical company um, that were helping me get integrated into uh, a new city and plugged into some of the uh, research going on at the academic medical center there. And as it happened, they also had an opening in their health outcomes team at the company to support their Alzheimer's assets. So I, got a call from the hiring manager. I had to Google health outcomes while I was talking to him because I had no idea <laughs> what it was. Um, but it turns out it was a great fit. So in most large pharmaceutical companies, there are these departments of mostly social scientists, um, a handful of psychologists, epidemiologists, master of public health, uh, social scientists that have um, that work alongside uh, clinical trials to do a lot of disease state research, uh, pharmacoeconomics, um, health outcomes, development of patient reported outcomes. So I, I found my niche in the pharmaceutical industry and, um, and that the rest is history. Loved it. Loved the people I was working with. Really interesting challenges from a research and science perspective. And also, I think having a clinical background brought a lot to the table as well, because we are dealing with um, uh, with interventions that are focused on patients. So having that perspective has has really, I think, brought something in addition to the table. Yeah, I, I love that uh, the background and the story. I think that happens a lot, right? You sort of all people a lot of times step into things that they weren't necessarily trained for, but are able to transition into it. And so I'm wondering. With your clinical training and, and background, how did that help you to achieve the corporate demands that you found as you transitioned from, from the clinical work? Well, I think as a clinical psychologist, certainly we, we work in multidisciplinary teams all the time. If we're, mm -hmm. if we're in clinical practice or even in research, we're collaborating with biostatisticians, with physicians, with other, other disciplines. And in the pharmaceutical industry, certainly in the role that I took, 
collaboration was mandatory for success. And so mm. I think having that that grounding, being able to, to relate to people with different training and backgrounds, being able to get to what their expertise is to really draw on that, I think helped tremendously and, and ease that transition into the corporate world. Um, certainly there were groups like marketing that I had never worked with before. Um, right, so yeah. I had to learn a little bit of their language and then figure <laughs> out what their role was and you know how, how all those pieces fit together. But I think having that foundation of having worked collaboratively, of having worked across different disciplines in clinical settings and academic mm -hmm. settings certainly set a, a really good foundation for being able to do the same in, in corporate America. Yeah, I, I love the, the, the experience that you brought from working in that clinical setting, working in teams. So being able to figure out how do you how do you work in an interdisciplinary setting? And that sounds like something that you have to do a lot in your in your current work. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the fun part of it too, right? You get to, yeah. to meet all sorts of interesting people with interesting backgrounds that are, are complementary to, to what I bring to the table. And I know that you're, you're a leader and have been a leader in this organization for quite a while. So talk to us a little bit about how that, how that was for you transitioning to becoming a leader in, in the corporate world and how you use your, your training and your experience to help you improve your leadership. Sure. So I think it's at a couple of levels. So one, being a leader does not necessarily mean you have direct reports. Um, mm -hmm. Oftentimes it's being able to influence and guide beyond your immediate sphere of influence, right? So again, if you're mm -hmm. working collaboratively and you have ideas and um, you're trying to get things implemented or if you have ideas to as to how to improve things, whether that's a clinical trial protocol or uh, a business process that might make things a little bit easier. So I think having those leadership skills are important for, for that type of leadership as well. So more um, from an influence perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, for training in psychology, we get great basics. We're taught mm. how to listen, how to be empathic. And all of yeah. that is just foundational, I think, to um, earning people's trust and respect and getting them to listen to you if, if they feel like you're going to give them a chance to have their say and, and to share what they know. So to me, some of those just foundational pieces about how to engage and interact with folks were, were really helpful in, in, and transferable skills into, um, into working in teams in a, in a non-clinical setting. Um, and then I think, you know, there's the other piece of it too. And, and fortunately I was sort of eased into being a supervisor, right? Things were expanding mm -hmm. a little in the portfolio. So I had like one direct report who probably got the brunt of some of my, um, missteps and mistakes, but fortunately, uh, didn't walk away and then the team yeah. grows. And so you sort of expand your That's skills nice. from there. Gradually. Yes. Here's 25 people. <laughs> right. And so, you know, I, Again, I think there are certain foundations, again, being able to listen, being empathic, um, I think being able to um, also to have that um, ability to reflect on my own actions, how I was feeling, how I'm responding so that if yeah. I'm aware of what I'm bringing to the dynamic as well to really mm -hmm. help the scientists on my team 
be as successful as possible um, to match their communication styles, to match their work styles, to make sure that they're going to get the support that they need from me in order to be successful in what they do. And again, I feel like a lot of those are, are skills that are, are taught as part of our clinical training to really yep. respond and reflect to, to the people that are sitting across from us. Yeah, I, I, re- I appreciate what you're saying there. You know, I've, we've had, um, I've, I've had in my individual series talking about how there's some foundational aspects to to uh, leading. And one of the things that you mentioned is that active listening, right? Just being mm-hmm. able to make sure that you're yeah. really hearing and understanding the perspective of the people that you're working with, not so that you can just respond, but to make sure that you're really understanding where they're coming from. So I really appreciate that. Uh, I, I'm wondering with your team, as you have developed your leadership, what are some of the things that you have found to be really helpful to engage in as a leader for your employees? Um, to Well, I think to engage employees, um, I think uh, being honest with them about things, um, trying to be as transparent as possible. I mean, sometimes we, you know, we have to help with trans organizational changes or things like that. But I think just mm-hmm. being as straightforward as possible with people. Um, I always tell team members that, that join my team, I don't like surprises. So mm. if something has gone awry, tell me about it. We'll figure out how to resolve it. But yeah. I think the same for them, right? Nobody, I, I don't think most people like surprises. So I think again, just being, being candid, being straightforward. Um, I think, it's also helped if I feel like I have misstepped or if something isn't going well mm-hmm. for whatever reason um, of, of being able to share that with, with the members of my team to reflect on that so that it's you know not about getting everything right all the time on the first time, but it's about being able to respond and, and to fix things and move forward and learn and get better um, as we go along together. Yeah, that's an interesting thought because a lot of times people think that leaders can never be wrong, right? They, they can't show any sign of, of weakness or, or can't apologize for anything like that. How have you found it when you engage in that, when you uh, make mistakes or, or missteps and, and have that discussion with the team? How have they received that? I think, well, hopefully I haven't made any too big of missteps or really egregious ones. I'm trying to think back. Um but, you know, again, I think well, and it's that human element that I want them to also feel like they can come to me if they're having issues. And so I think part of it is modeling that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think the reflection that I get back from them is that they appreciate that. Um, and if it's something that we can work on and fix together, then we will certainly do that. Um, but I think to my... I think it works pretty well. I do feel like within my team, we have good communication. And if they are running into issues with with coworkers or with a process or with how things are going or they're frustrated, that they can come mm-hmm. to me and that we'll figure out a path forward together. Cool. Now, I, Chris, I know you're in the, the, um, you know, the business of science and pharmaceutical. How has your training and your experience as a psychologist in behavioral sciences, how has that helped you in that work? Well, I think we get as clinical psychologists um, and in my training, I'll put a little plug in for University of Kansas, if I may. Um, But I do. I think coming out of that program, I felt like I had a a very rigorous training in um, 
in research methodology and statistics Mm -hmm. and study design. So I felt like coming in, um, certainly having that, that training is essential. Um, and, and also I think because in clinical psychology, we have to hit on a lot of different, I mean, it's not just observational research. We also understand at least the, the basic principles, maybe not the advanced principles of, of developing patient reported outcomes or clinic mm-hmm. clinician reported outcomes, psychometrics, yeah. assessment, all of those pieces. And so when you step in, especially in the pharmaceutical industry, um, you know, a clinical trial protocol to me seemed pretty straightforward, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you have pretty well controlled um, environment. It's not nearly as messy as, as some of the other observational research that we do. So I think having that foundation was really helpful, having the grounding in statistics as well, so that I could have informed conversations with the statisticians that I work with, both in the company, but also at some of the research vendors that we work with. Um, So I think all of that was really helpful. And I was really grateful to have had such a strong grounding, I think, in in my graduate program and then mm-hmm. further developed in, in my postdoc research to, to be able to bring that to, to bear on the, the work that I was doing in the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah, I think that's such a, a great example of how this, you know, you get some of those basic sciences that, that can be applied across um, whatever area that you're working in. I think that's that's such a great example. Uh, you know, I, I'm wondering, do you have any examples of of um, how you you've used that to help your team of of scientists and and researchers be more successful. Um, I mean, again, they they come in highly qualified, so I often feel like my job with my team is like to give them the resources they need and get out of the way because they have mm. great ideas on how to do that. But I that said. I think having the background and training and now having had years of experience doing all kinds of different research, prospective observational studies, claim, uh, claims database, uh, retrospective studies, um, having helped with some of the patient reported outcomes and that integration and validation into the clinical trials and into our regulatory dossier. So I think having that breadth of experience helps too, because I do think on my teams then I can engage with the scientists if they're kind of stuck on a design issue or want to talk through maybe a few different decisions that they have to, to make as they're building out a protocol, having that, mm-hmm. that, foundation, I feel like I can engage at, uh, uh, at an appropriate level and, and provide some guidance and advice, or at least just be, you know, a, a sounding board for them and have them walk out of that conversation and feel confident in the decisions that they've made moving forward. Mm-hmm. So what is that, what is that team like? Is that, is that similar to the clinical team in terms of being interdisciplinary or are they, are they all uh, have different expertise that they bring to bear, and how do you how do you how do you build that that teamwork from that perspective? So we have, I mean, my team. I'm trying to think back. I think every team I've had at at different companies have come with different backgrounds. So some PhDs in pharmacoeconomics, um, MPHs, PharmDs are are pretty common in the field. So have had um, PhDs in epidemiology. Um, I think maybe sociology, I had one, um, even had a biochemist that came through, um, interestingly, mm. and had kind of retrained. So, I, 
you know, have a, a wealth of expertise. And what I encourage on the team, too, is because they're all bringing something unique to the table that they're also having conversations with each other and able to support each other. You know, some have more of a grounding in how to do um, large observational studies. And so they can mm-hmm. help coach and mentor someone else that maybe doesn't have that exposure. Um, so t- to me, it's about just recognizing where your strengths are, fostering an environment where folks feel comfortable to, to reach out to each other, to, to get help or to offer help as they see, you know, someone maybe embarking in, in a type of methodology or even therapeutic area where they might have some, some additional insights. So I think hopefully driving some of that collegiality on the team so that everybody's helping each other out. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great way of doing that. I think helping them to to, to rely on each other and to uh, see the value of each other's expertise sounds like a really good way of helping to build a team up. Yeah, they're okay. They're so, fun. Chris, uh, it's, it's all nerdy scientists, want... so we love to to talk about the the nerdy science. So it works out. Yeah, well. <laughs> get a bunch of nerds together, right? Everyone's happy. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So, so I want to talk a little bit more about your leadership stocks. I know that you, um, you've sometimes mentioned the situational leadership approach. I'm wondering what, what is your leadership style if you had to, um, kind of categorize that and define that? Oh, that's always a tough one. I think, um, how would I describe it? I think I would say. And I'm not I'm not steeped in the the I.O. Um, structures, but I think of it as more authoritative. So I like to be able to give clear vision, clear goals, mm-hmm. um, but I'm not going to get into the weeds. I can't think of anything more punishing than being micromanaged or frankly <laughs> of, of having to micromanage someone yeah, like that just seems like a, a horrible proposition to it's me. It's such a chore. Yeah. 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 So I, and especially if you're working with a group of scientists who are coming in with these advanced degrees and a wealth of expertise, right? This yeah. is not yeah. a, a team that's going to thrive on that. So I think of myself as, more of authoritative of providing that that guidance and that vision of where we need to go um, and then letting them rise to the challenge and and mm-hmm. being able to provide those resources as necessary um, but also of being clear in expectations and being clear on the the goals um, and then to reinforce to make sure that as they're doing well and having successes that, that those mm-hmm. are those are being recognized. Um, where there are issues that those are dealt with in a timely way um, and in a way that's going to help them move forward. I mean, again, I've been fortunate that I've not had a whole lot of, of major issues that needed, you know, extensive coaching or anything like that. But, uh, mm-hmm. but again, I think it's, it's recognizing where the successes are, reinforcing the behaviors that, that will drive success, especially in industry, um, and then being able to, to help them get the resources that they need to be successful. Yeah, I mean, it, this is such a, such a unique thing that you have and that you, you lead a, a team of highly skilled individuals. You know, you mentioned people with PhDs and they're experts in the field. Uh, you know, what, what are some of those, those, those specific things that you think are really important when you're leading a group of people like that? You know, what are some of the, the benefits and the challenges that come along with that? Um, I mean, I, I, 
to me, the benefit is you just, you can have these great, again, nerdy scientific discussions yeah. and they're going to engage, you know, and they really, they, they know their area. They have their, their, um, their expertise. To me, the challenge is keeping them excited and keeping them in work that's going to spark their interest and spark their imagination and innovation um, mm -hmm. to make sure that, you know, they don't get bogged down in some of the processes. I mean, pharmaceutical industry is a highly regulated industry. There's no way to right. get around that. And we should be, yeah. right? I mean, we put drugs into people experimentally. So we better be careful and we better be highly regulated. Mm -hmm. But that also means that there's a lot of processes and standard operating procedures, and it can get pretty clunky to actually get to the research. And so for me, I feel like the challenge is keeping people that are so intelligent, so committed to, to doing good things for patients and not have mm -hmm. them get bogged down or distracted in some of the more process heavy um, facets of, of working in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, and then just to, to keep them engaged, to have regular conversations about what they're enjoying, what they're not enjoying, you know, if there's opportunities for them to, to try things out in a different therapeutic area or maybe to try out a new a new methodology that those are are part of the discussion as well to make sure that there's a clear plan to make sure that they're continuing to stay engaged they feel like they're continuing to grow and to learn and and to be better at, at what they're doing yeah so i mean that's that's really interesting in that that there's there's so many restrictions which we've talked about which are appropriate how, how do you how do you prevent them from getting frustrated with these restrictions and you know, getting discouraged um, and, and staying focused and passionate about the work that they want to do? Um, well, I can't always do that completely. So there are definitely <laughs> times when we're all frustrated together. Um, oh. So I think, you know, again, I, um, I am not shy. And if I feel like something isn't working, I will happily escalate if, you know, if I feel like there's there's a path where we can make something better or improve mm -hmm. on that. Um, so I also feel like part of my role is to be an advocate for them. If there are some, some places that are continuing to cause um, delays or frustrations for the scientists, sometimes we can't fix them. Sometimes there are just requirements that we're not going to get around. So I feel like some of it is expectation management. Um, and again, some of it, it goes back to that empathy to active listening of like, being there for them yeah. and of letting yeah. them vent their frustration appropriately and, you know, just letting them know that they've been heard and where they're, where I am trying to escalate or where we are trying to make changes as, as a department or as a broader company of making sure that they have visibility and awareness to that. Um, right. so that they, they understand that they're not just bringing this forward and it goes nowhere. Um, mm -hmm. but that we are trying to make some, some positive changes. Yeah. I appreciate that you're, you know, you're, you see that as part of your job is to, to, um, to, to stand in the gap for them, right. To try to deal with some of the problems and, and, and try to uh, remove some of that frustration when, when possible, right. It's not always yeah. possible, yeah. but, um, sometimes you're all frustrated together. So that's also part, <laughs> of, the, part of the process then, right. So. Chris, it's been, it's been awesome having you on. How, how do people reach you if they want to continue the conversation with you? I am on LinkedIn, so do reach out. i happy to um, just 
You can message me through LinkedIn, I think is probably the easiest. And I am uh, Kristen Robleski on LinkedIn, so you will find me there. Um, happy to continue conversations. Uh, uh, there aren't so many clinical psychologists in similar roles or that I come across in, in pharma. So would love to hear from others that may be in, in similar roles or have decided to move out of, of clinic and academia and into the big corporate world. Um, always looking for some, some buddies to, to swap stories and to, um, to share experiences with. So it's been a pleasure, yeah. Ernest. I really appreciate the, the opportunity to come here today. I'm so glad you came on. And I, I always want to ask everybody, you know, because you're such, a, such an experienced leader in a unique position, what's one tip that you could leave for, for our audience today? I think, and this came from a conversation from one of my delightful fellows that I have on the team right now. I, I think my advice would be to know thyself. So know what motivates you, know what's going to get you excited um, so that you can come to work and be fully present and, you know, be genuinely interested and excited about the work that you're doing. Um, mm -hmm. But also so that you understand what you're bringing to the dynamic, that you understand um, your place and your role in, in the teams that you're on and, um, and as a leader. So I think that taking the time to do that self-reflection is, is really important so that you can be as authentic um, and as present as possible in, in the work that you do. Yeah, I think that's such great advice. You know, last week I was talking about authentic leadership. One of the, the tenets of authentic leadership is self-awareness, that, that yep. self-knowledge so that you can really understand who you are and what motivates you so that you can really understand how it is that you're leading and what's impacting your leadership. I, I think that's really key. And I don't think we do that enough. We don't spend enough time focused on ourselves to better understand ourselves and how that's impacting our relationships with other people. So I really appreciate that advice. All right. Well, Chris, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. And we hope you'll join us next time.